Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, I bring you a story about the centennial celebration of Lehman Caves and about a project to map cave systems in the state. A few weeks ago, you got trees. Now you're getting caves. Hope you brought your hard hats and flashlights. After that, reporter Carly Savageau breaks down the Reno mayoral race, as well as the open positions on the Reno City Council. At the end of the show, Deputy Secretary of State for Elections Mark Velashin chats about the Nevada ballot, specifically one fun element that is unique to the state, the option to vote for none of these candidates. Southeast of Ely, on a highway dubbed the loneliest road in America, lies Great Basin National Park. You can see the mountains as you approach, but today we're going to be talking about what's under those mountains, caves. Lehman Caves is located in Great Basin, and this year the park is celebrating the 100th anniversary of the discovery of the caves. I got the chance to tour them earlier this summer, and my tour guide Kelsey Jackson explained to me what makes the caves so special. Just note you'll hear some other people in the background who are also going through the caves while Kelsey was showing me around. So this cave, it's not the biggest by any means. It's only about a little bit over two miles if you put all the rooms and passages next to each other. So it's, it's the longest cave in Nevada, but it's not the longest cave in the world. But this cave is really special because we have so many formations that are so close to you. You can walk right up to them and really see them and connect with the formations. Some of those formations include stalactites, those are the ones that hang from the ceiling, and stalagmites, which are the ones that come up from the floor. There are also really unique formations like cave bacon and cave turnips, which, you guessed it, look like bacon and turnips growing on the cave ceiling and walls. The cave also has a really unique formation called cave shields, which look like giant parachutes ribbed with rocks, where it's wide at the top and tapers towards the bottom. Here's cave researcher Gretchen Baker on those. Lehman Caves itself has over 500 cave shields, which is uh, one of the highest numbers in the world. So that makes it really interesting. And there are some cave shields in some of the other caves, but not necessarily all of them. So we're trying to understand why do some caves have them and some caves don't. And so that makes it really special. And I don't understand why it's only found there. We had people come in and count the cave shields that we have here in this cave. We have the most cave shields out of any cave in the entire world. We have 504. So this is kind of a a research hotspot. And speaking of research, there's actually a ton of caves in Nevada. And recently, Gretchen got to assemble what she's calling the dream team to research and map these caves in eastern Nevada. Great Basin National Park and the Ely District of the U.S. Forest Service are collaborating on a Protecting Wild Caves in White Pine County project. And White Pine County is where most of the caves in the state of Nevada are. We just have lots of mountain ranges with lots of limestone and dolomite, which are the two rocks that the caves are formed in most often. And we know a fair bit about some of the caves, but there are a lot of questions we have. So in order to help answer those questions, a project proposal was submitted to the Southern Nevada Public Lands Management Act program, and it got accepted and funded. We have an archaeologist, paleontologist, geologist, and a couple biologists on this team, and they are going out to these different caves and investigating them. So writing down and taking photographs of everything they find. We're also doing some videos and some cave mapping to help 
make sure that we document these caves as best we can and find out which caves might need additional research and which caves might be good to be open for the public so they can experience what a wild cave can be like. So, you know, I wanted to know what it's like inside of these caves and what researchers are finding. So here's what Gretchen had to say, but just a warning, if you have arachnophobia, beware. We're learning about some of the spiders in some of the caves that have really long webs that look like they might pass down from generation to generation. And we're not sure if these spiders are only found in caves, if they are, they're only in one mountain range. We haven't found them in other mountain ranges. So maybe they have been isolated for so long in those caves that they've become their own species. So we're going to be consulting with experts on that and perhaps doing some molecular work to find out if we have some new species to science in these cave spiders. The cave can support life that is so unique because the environment is so much more specific than what we find above ground, which leads to life that has much more interesting living conditions. We have one cave that has really high carbon dioxide levels seasonally, and there's been a study in a cave in Australia where they found that caves there that have, have high CO2 have more cave biodiversity than others. So apparently those cave invertebrates have really adapted to this what toxic environment for us humans, but they're, they're good with it. And so that might be where we're able to find something that's pretty extreme. So Lehman Caves specifically actually has some pretty unique critters. Here's Kelsey again. We also have like small organisms that are only found here within Great Basin National Park. They're not found anywhere else. We have pseudoscorpions, the Great Basin Cave pseudoscorpions, which are my personal favorite. They're the top predator of the cave. They're feared by many and about the size of your pinky nail. <laughs> yeah. We have millipedes, springtails. We also have bats, of course, that, that hang out over by the natural entrance. They'll fly in sleep during the day and then go out and eat all the bugs that annoy us at night, which is wonderful. So yeah, we also want to protect the cave so people can come and see it, but also for, for our organisms as well to be able to thrive down here. But you know, it's not just an exploration of the living critters. Nevada's caves harbor the remains of some ancient creatures as well, which can teach us about the land many, many generations before it became the state we know today. The caves preserve bones really well because it maintains a pretty regular temperature and humidity in there. And they found things like ancient tiny knee-high pronghorns and giant cave bears and pterosaurs or pterodactyls as they're also known, which are giant flying reptiles with wingspans of 16 feet or more. The subterranean places where things are preserved for so long lets us get a glimpse back in time of how things used to be and how they may have formed and some of these caves are really old, millions of years old. And so thinking about, whoa, yeah, what was going on here millions of years ago is a, a pretty cool thought. Okay, so all of the critters in research are really cool and can tell us a lot. But what about caves themselves? What's going on with the actual rocks and minerals that are found in these holes in the desert? Caves in themselves are kind of like treasure troves. We have lots of cool different sciences kind of meeting here in this area. Um, we have ecology, we've got geology, hydrology, all sorts of things are happening here in this cave. And for us to be able to learn more about ourselves in the future, I think we need to keep these places safe. The geology, we're getting a better understanding that 
a lot of the caves started from warm acidic water that came up from below. The whole region has been overlooked as far as cave science. And so we have some really top people as part of the stream team looking at it. And so, you know, that warm acidic water may help inform some of the origin of some of these geological features and of some other related things that are really big in our state, like mining. We're trying to puzzle out, like, where did this warm acidic water come from? There had to have been some big warm event. And so one of the hypotheses is it's when the, the Carlin trend formed and the gold was being pushed up near Elko. And so if we can connect to that, then that tells us a much wider area of what was going on at that time. So are these caves in danger of going away? How are they being affected by the ever-changing climate? Because believe it or not, most caves are actually growing, but that may be being threatened. Caves specifically are really good mirrors for what it's like outside. So we're in a really bad drought here in this region. If that water is not coming into the cave, it's not depositing the minerals that the cave needs to grow. So everything just kind of halts and it's very, very dry. There hasn't been much research yet about the effects of condensation corrosion on the, the formations themselves, so that carbon dioxide eating away at the formations naturally. Maybe the rate at which that happens might start to surpass the rate at which water can actually deposit those minerals. It's very, very important that we make sure water's coming into the cave so that people can see how cool this is in the future. When we walk around on Earth, we often don't think about what we're walking on or what's under our feet. And when we look, can go down underground, whether it's into the soil or into a cavity like in a cave, we are able to find out so much more. And caves are, I call them treasure tropes because they may not have Spanish gold in them, <laughs> but they do have a lot of preserved things because they generally are hard to get into, so not too many people have gone into them, and so they're rather undisturbed. There's not big rain events generally in them, and so they stay fairly static, and so you can have records that go back tens of thousands of years. And so you learn that bristlecone pines used to grow a lot lower on the mountain, but nowadays you don't see them there. And so that tells you that the climate was a lot different at that period. And if we didn't have places like caves, that evidence would have been washed away in flash floods or blown away in high winds. This piece was written, reported, and edited by myself, Joey Lovato, with additional reporting help from Daniel Rothberg and additional editing help from Jackie Valley. Okay, well, from northeastern Nevada to northwestern Nevada, we are talking about the Reno mayoral and city council races coming up this November. That's right. Reporter Carly Savageau has been following and reporting on those races in Reno and is here to break down the big ones for us. I'm here with reporter Carly Savageau, and we are talking about all of the, we're doing a, a Reno medley, uh, talking about all of the fun races that are happening in Reno right now. So Carly, you've been reporting on this. We have a big story on our website, thenevadaindependent.com that Carly wrote up if you want to go check that out. But to start off, to, to get into what's going on in Reno, there are three big races that you're, that you're paying attention to right now. Isn't that right? Yes, that's correct. That is the mayoral race and then Ward 2 and Ward 4. 
and the other city councils are not they're not running this this cycle right yes that's correct so so let's start with the mayor race incumbent mayor hillary shivy who's she's been mayor of reno for a pretty long time now she is running again and she's running against eddie lorton someone who's been tried to run many times before so tell me a little bit about this race what are you paying attention to what are the big issues So it's pretty interesting because they've ran against each other in 2018 as well. I would say the biggest issues right now are just the issues that are facing Reno in general. Obviously, like infrastructure as this area grows a lot, and then homelessness and relationships with the police and sustainability, especially as like our Southern Nevada neighbors are running out of water. We're talking about how to deal with that. So those are four main issues. And so let's start with incumbent Mayor Shivi. What are her talking points at the moment? Right now, so she's really focused on mental health if she is reelected, focusing on a 24-7 mental health facility that she's working on with the county and state to put on the Northern Nevada Adults Mental Health Services campus. She's been more vocal about her family history with mental health, and I think after the pandemic, she's wanted to focus more on that. The council put $1.3 million in a talk space, which was like a free online counseling service during the pandemic. So I think that's really what Shivi is kind of, that's what she wanted to talk about. What is Eddie Lorton's big running points at the moment as well? Well, it's kind of, it's harder to say with Lorton because he did not want an interview, but he is more focused on smarter development and dealing with the homeless shelter differently. The talking points that I got from his website, like it's more, a lot of people have criticized how Shivi has developed Reno especially with like the housing crisis and uh, Jacobs tearing down a bunch of hotels and leaving like empty lots. So he really honed in on the better infrastructure and building smarter and then giving more responsibilities of the Reno homeless to the county. All right. So then moving on to Ward 2, who's running in Ward 2? So Ward 2 is incumbent Naomi Dewar. And then her challenger is Jay Kenny, who owns Doughboy's Donuts. What is Ward 2? Kind of where is that located first? So Ward 2, I would say how I would visualize it is if you know where Virginia Lake is, the pepper mill area, and then keep going south, like as south as you can go, uh, like the city limits, that's Ward 2. So you're basically talking about Damani Ranch, that kind of area. Yeah, from downtown to South Reno. Yeah, exactly. All right. So let's start with the incumbent again, Dewar. What are her big running points? So she has a background in like geology. That's what her small business is in. She has a lot of like expertise in that. So she talked a lot about like water and environmental planning. They have a deal with One Water Nevada, which is a drought resistant program where they'll use the excess water. They'll save it instead of uh, using it for excess development. She also really honed in on housing. She really wants to do more like 80-20 housing. 20% of units would be affordable housing in like a normal income sort of complex. So people are living together. There's not one complex that's affordable housing. And also she wants to expand the roads in South Reno because traffic has been a really big problem, specifically on Steamboat Partway. She wants to expand that. And then so, and then what is Jay Kenny, the owner of Doughboy Donuts? So this is his first time running for for an elected position, right? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. So what are his big points? So incumbents, I've noticed, have a lot more detail in what they're running for because they just have more knowledge on the position. Jay Kenny talked a lot about small business development, which so did Dewar because they're obviously both small business owners. 
but Kenny really wanted to focus in on supporting small businesses and supporting like families and bolstering the economy. And then we'll move on to the the final ward, Ward 4, which is between incumbent Bonnie Weber and another political newcomer, Megan Ebert, right? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. So where is Ward 4? So Ward 4, I would characterize it as generally like the North Valley. So Lemon Valley, Cold Springs, basically the opposite side of Reno from Ward 2. It's like very North Reno. Yeah, north of the university and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's start with the incumbent, like once again. So Bonnie Weber, what are her big running points? So I wasn't able to get a hold of Bonnie Weber on her website. She emphasized building more of an urban core in the North Valleys, like similar to Midtown in downtown, just because the North Valleys have community centers and various separated community gathering places, but not like a cohesive place for people to meet or shop or get services like we do in downtown Reno. So she really focused on that. Yeah. And then what about what about Megan Ebert? So Megan Ebert also wanted to focus on smarter development. So she really honed in on the 2017 like Swan Lake flooding when after that huge flood in the winter of 2017, they pumped a bunch of water into Swan Lake and it flooded people's houses. She emphasized on that she wants to deal with stuff like that better. Dealing with infrastructure that is more like environmentally conscious. She said she wants to put in more solar panels and just plan better for flooding and wildfires. And I guess too, we should mention that for mayor and city council, these are nonpartisan positions, right? So these aren't people that are running as Democrats or Republicans. They kind of are, are they don't have a political party backing them. They are running uh, as, as, as nonpartisans. Yes, exactly. What should people kind of be paying attention to in this in a race that's nonpartisan? Are there like local pieces that people should be focusing on? Like what, what, what are you focusing on as a voter when, when trying to be informed with a race like this? Really what nonpartisan, one of the candidates that I interviewed summed this up, the nonpartisan doesn't necessarily mean that you don't hold the values of the party that you're registered for. It's just the people before your party. I would say still know what issues are most important to you as a voter and then just read up on which candidate is backing those issues. Because obviously there's a lot of overlap with a lot of candidates. There's a lot of candidates who want to build more environmentally smarter. And there's a lot of candidates like for Naomi Dewar and Jay Kenney. They're both bolstering small businesses, but they're doing it in different ways. Their phone numbers are public information. They're on the county website. So I would honestly like call them and say, well, you say you want to bolster small businesses. How are you going to do that? Because they both, the general issues a lot of people want to cover, but it's how they're covering it. All right, cool. Well, Carly, we'll leave it there for now. You'll be following these races throughout the, the next couple of months as we approach the, the general election in November. So keep up the good work and make sure to pay attention to our election page on our website if you want any more information. Carly, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Well, from Reno's ballots to everyone's ballots, we're going to take a look at one fun option that only Nevadans have on their ballots come November. That's right, Jacob. And did you know that in Nevada, you can vote for none of these candidates? It's actually an option on your ballot. So instead of just not voting in a specific race, you can actually bubble in. No, I don't like any of my options here. <laughs> yeah, basically. And so to give some more context and explain it a little bit better than just that, we have uh, Deputy Secretary of State for Elections, Mark Velashin, on the show, and he helps run elections in the state, and he'll explain a little bit more about why that's on our ballots and why it's so fun.
All right, well, I am here with the Deputy Secretary of States for Elections, Mark Velashin, and we are talking about something very uniquely Nevada and something that I really enjoy, which is one unique characteristic of the Nevada ballot, which is the fact that you can vote for none of these candidates on our ballot. And I believe we are the only state that has this. Am I right, Mark? From what I can tell, I, I won't pretend to be like an expert in all 50 states and the territories, but, but to the best of my knowledge, yes. And so why... Why do we have this? Where did this come from? <laughs> <laughs> a good question. It's probably easier for me to explain the how we have it than necessarily the why without getting into the legislative intent. But the, the short version is, is back in 1975, there was an assemblyman by the name of Don Mello, and he proposed a bill. And the idea was to stimulate voter turnout by having an extra option on the, the ballot. The idea being that if voters only knew of, of one individual on the ballot, well, then it might might deter them from coming so that by having this option, an option that says none of these on certain races, it might encourage them to come out so they could select none of these instead of necessarily the candidates that they don't like. A lot of discussions since, and there's even been a handful of lawsuits. The, the basic premise, though, is on certain races. This is in both primary and general elections, but it's only for certain offices. So, you, you know, if, if you're wondering why you haven't seen that for maybe a, a certain county level race, it's only for president and vice president, a United States senator, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, state treasurer, state controller. So our six constitutional positions and justice of the Supreme Court. So those are the only ones. And again, like I said, it is on the primary and the general election ballot. And the idea is that after your list of those candidates for each of those offices at the bottom, you will have none of these as an option to select. And so I guess another big question I'm sure people have when they hear about this is, has none of these candidates ever won? <laughs> <laughs> the way the statute, and this is for those interested, is NRS 293.269 that talks about the requirements. And it's, it's a relatively short statute. It even specifies in the law, though, that if the voters choose none of these candidates above another candidate, the individual who, who gets second ultimately wins that, that election. But yes, in the history of our state, maybe it's not too surprising that none of these candidates has emerged as the top choice of the voters more than once, I believe. Basically, the person that gets second just has to live with the knowledge that so many people didn't want them that they ended up coming in second. Anyone else but them, but they ended up winning still. That, that's essentially the gist of it. It's almost a, a bit depressing to, to consider. Yeah, that, that is kind of the bottom line to it, which is interesting because I, I think in effect, then Nevada voters really have two options that I think above and beyond what they probably would see elsewhere in the country, right? Now, they have the option for these offices to choose none of these candidates. Or they have the option to just simply undervote, right? To not cast a vote at all for anyone. So really, when you think about like the total amount of turnout for these races, you can't just say, well, it's the total. And then, yeah, none of these, you know, the people that voted for none of these candidates, which, for example, in the 2020 election, the general election for U.S. president, I recall it was about 14,000 votes were cast for none of these candidates. But there's also the, the number of individuals who undervoted, too, that, that just simply left that race blank and moved on to the next one. Multiple options to express your displeasure at the, the names of the individuals on the ballot. And I know you guys keep track of that kind of data. Does that tell you anything about the voter or, or do you see any sort of trends with none of these candidates getting voted for? Has it increased or decreased over the years? Does it tell you anything? To be perfectly frank, the Office of the Secretary of State and the Elections Division, we don't fancy ourselves to be political scientists, but we, we are here for the process and, and supporting the Secretary's statutory role of execution and enforcement of, of, of state law and then all the federal laws. So th this is one of those things that 
Yeah, certainly we notice. Certainly we, we have to include in our, our calculations and, and tabulations, rather, you know, when we're posting things on the election night reporting site, for example. But, but ultimately, you know, while there's kind of varying degrees of individuals who have voted for and, and certain races seem to attract votes for none of these candidates over the decades, some more so than others. Have you seen it increase or decrease at all? You know what it has? It seems to have increased. Looking back in the first couple of years when when none of these candidates was on the ballot, a couple thousand generally, upwards like three to 5,000 votes cast. And, and from what I recall of like the presidential race, and this is back in the 70s, 80s time period. Since then, as I mentioned in the 2020 general, 14,000 for the, the US president, even the teens, 2010 to about 2016, there were kind of some decent spikes. In 2012, it was U.S. Senate, 45,000 votes cast for none of these candidates. And in 2016, 28,000 votes. 2002 gubernatorial election had 23,000. So kind of varying. And another interesting thing too to take into consideration is that in some of those cases, that exceeded the margin of victory. So it was the, the none of these candidates essentially drew enough you know, votes away that kind of wonder if, if none of these candidates wasn't on the ballot, would those have just been under votes? Would the the, vote, the electorate have, have essentially said the same thing by simply leaving that race blank? Or would they maybe have made a different selection? Never really, no way to answer that, of course, but um, it is a unique aspect of our ballot and our electoral process. And I think for context, the 2002 gubernatorial race, it was 4.7% of the vote actually was what it ended up being. And that was between Kenny Gwynn and Joe Neal. And then the 2012 was 4.5% between Shelley Berkeley and Dean Heller. So you're seeing like almost 5% of the vote going to that. Is there really any difference between just not voting and voting for none of these candidates? Uh, again, voter intent, right? Like the, uh, <laughs> it, It's hard to, hard to understand and, and to interpret, but you're right. At the end of the day, the impression, it speaks volumes and I'm, I'm happy that those individuals got to the ballot box. It kind of reminds me, too, of another thing that is very uniquely Nevada. And correct me if I'm wrong on how this works exactly, but if two candidates tie, they actually draw cards, correct? <laughs> it, it says uh, it's decided by lot, but yes, you're, you're right. And because it says by lot, ultimately, it becomes the determination of a, if it's a county race at the clerk or the secretary of state and, and determining those sorts of things, as I understand it. it. It hasn't happened under my tenure, though I believe it has happened fairly recently. And yes, you're right. It was a high card is kind of how they do it. But because it's decided by lots, right? I mean, like that, that's really a wide range of options that could be done. <laughs> So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate all the work that you guys are doing over the Secretary of State. And we'll be probably hearing more from you, especially as the election draws ever closer. I appreciate you having me on here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Gretchen Baker, Kelsey Jackson, Carly Savageau, and Mark Velashin for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us with pictures of your pets. No joke this week, we just want to see your pets. Or whatever else is on your mind at podcast at Our original theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Oh, I got a sneeze. He's going to sneeze. It passed. Oh, that was brutal, though. Was... He, he held it in just for the podcast. I held it in. Oh, it's going to kill me. <laughs>